0: The Johnson administration's use of a do-not-hire list is once again in the spotlight. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, about properties for sale in the local market, including a condo owned by a famous Chicago architect who was also a member of the World War II Army troop nicknamed the Monuments Men.
1: This group of scholars who were out to protect art and cultural treasures from the Nazis. A book comes out in the 21st century. George Clooney makes a movie. There's an awards ceremony in Washington, and because he was this young guy at the time of World War II, he's the last one still standing.
0: I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, January 18th. Are you sick of not being your bank's top priority? We are, too. At Wintrust, we take a different approach to banking. We're proud to be your one true banking partner focused on your unique financial goals that's right in your backyard. Whether you're opening your first account, buying a home, planning for the future, or starting a business, we have tailored solutions to get you there. Stop settling and start experiencing a better way to bank at Wintrust.com. Wintrust, different approach, better results. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial. Financial Corporation Banks, member FDIC. I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Hey Dennis, how's it going? Great.
1: Amy, how are you?
0: I'm well. So lots of things to get into this week. The year is off to a busy start for you for sure. So let's start by talking about uh, the National Association of Realtors, which we talked about last time. Tell me now uh, about what's going on there, the the latest.
1: Well, so we've been following these commission lawsuits. And of course, Cranes isn't the only. The the national media are following these commission lawsuits, and they are proliferating Um, for people who aren't aware Real estate agents get paid a commission for the sale of a home, both the buyer's agent and the seller's agent. And for the last several months, uh, there has been a lot of action in the courts. Well, really, it goes back a few years, but there was a big verdict in October and since then a lot more action in the courts uh, from people who claim that the commission rules squash competition by requiring agents to sign this sort of shared agreement. I, as the seller's agent, will get from the seller 5 to 6% of the price and split it in half with you, the agent for the buyer. Uh, and so the primary argument here is the buyer's agent can't say to a, to a client, hey, I'll take only 1% of the commission. That's at its essence. In October, there was a giant verdict found in a federal court in Kansas City. Uh, The National Association of Realtors and two big brokerages were found liable for, in the National Association of Realtors case, $1.78 billion, which would supposedly make up for all the overcharge commissions over the course of decades, or what one lawsuit refers to as ill-gotten commissions. Right away, when the verdict came out, the National Association of Realtors and the other defendants said, we will be appealing this, and now they have. The new news is that last week, the National Association of Realtors filed to either have the judge in the case overrule that jury verdict, or have the judge toss it out. Overrule it because, according to the association, the judge used the wrong law and did not apply certain standards properly. People who want to get into the details of this, of course, can find that we posted the case and others did as well. So there's this argument that the commission structure squashes competition. The National Association of Realtors has arguments that say that, in fact, the commission structure fosters competition. And according to them, they were not allowed during the trial to give enough evidence backing that up. So they're asking the judge in the case to either issue a a ruling that the case was found incorrectly by the jury or to throw out what the jury verdict was this is just the next step as i said they said they were going to appeal now they have and now this is going to be covered by me by the real estate press over the course of quite a long time as it works its way through
0: yeah certainly and do you have a sense of what kind of timeline you're looking at here
1: We don't. You know, whenever when you cover a lawsuit, you learn to go slowly because there are a lot of steps that uh, do not become news motions by attorneys and that sort of thing. I don't know. And the size of this is so big that I think that will probably slow it down. Um, At the same time, we're seeing sort of a cottage industry spring up of other lawsuits related to commissions
0: which is a perfect segue for another story I would like to talk with you about. And that is how a home homebuyer uh, is suing at properties over what was described as a conspiracy on agents' commissions. Tell me about this.
1: Yeah, this is one of those, um, one of the suits that have sprung up uh, as a result of or around that big Kansas City verdict. According to Housing Wire, there are four of these cases in Illinois, meaning that Illinois has the most of any state in the union Of these cases revolving around commissions. I've written about three of them. The latest one is this one that came out last week aimed at At Properties, Christie's International Real Estate. That brokerage is by far the largest in Chicago. So obviously a target if you're going to try to uh, bring out a class action suit based on commissions. What the suit says is that a man who bought a $785,000 house in Westtown in 2018 was a victim of this conspiracy by agents to keep commissions high. The argument that the case makes is by its size at properties basically endorses and enforces the conspiracy that's in place between Um, the National Association of Realtors and all brokerages uh, that participate. What at Property responds is, uh, we may be big, but we have no role in setting this commission rule. And really what your target is, is the National Association of Realtors. So we're going to see where that one goes. As I said, it's one of four in the Illinois courts. There are a few dozen if you look all around the country. This one was interesting to read because it does lay out step by step by step what these attorneys consider a conspiracy by the real estate industry. Once again, it says At Properties is so big that it's sort of the biggest player in the conspiracy in Chicago. So it'll be interesting to see, does a judge say, okay, that means At Properties is guilty?
0: TBD. Yeah, we'll have to put pins in all of those things and revisit them as more... More information becomes available. Well, another thing kind of related to that that you reported on recently is the number of real estate agents that might be leaving the business. There's a lot of change afoot. We just got through the pandemic, all these kind of things. What does the real estate or what do numbers in the real estate business look like right now?
1: They're not down as much as I expected. We're kind of doing a mirror image of a story I did at the height of the real estate boom when new people were flooding into... The business. And, and that was in part, We I said at the time, several of them told me, COVID had shut down the business you're in. You're looking for a business that is thriving. Real estate, which was considered a, an essential business and was not closed down by COVID, was very attractive to people. Well, not surprisingly, now that we're past that boom, now that business is down, now that home sales are way down, as you and I have discussed several times, home sales are down about 14% in 2023 from 2022, and about 35% from the peak year, 2021, you would expect the business is shrinking, so the number of people in that business would shrink. So, the three layers of membership organizations in the real estate industry, Chicago Association of Realtors, the Suburban Group, which is called Main Street, and Illinois Association of Realtors, all... Finished their renewal process at the end of December, got me the figures. They're all three down in the two to three percent range. They lost in 2023 approximately three percent of their members. That's bigger than what the National Association reported. The National Association is down about 1.7 percent, and our three organizations are down two to three percent. It's not a whole lot bigger. Fewer people have left than I expected. It's also fewer than. Main Street, the suburban organization, expected. Their uh, CEO talked to me about how, seeing the business shrink, they said, Well, it seems likely that we'll be down by about 6%. And instead, they were down by less than 3%. So that's the good news. Uh, you know, these organizations aren't shrinking as fast as they thought they would. Uh, but of course, over the course of time, we might see more shrinkage, or because it looks like there might be a revival of home sales as interest rates go down. Maybe people who were on the bubble, maybe people who were saying "Eh, 2024 may be the last year I pay my dues. Maybe they go ahead and stick around. We'll have to watch that over the course of time.
0: Yeah, definitely. So talk to me now about how factory built houses could be coming to Woodlawn.
1: You know, I'm so fascinated by these factory built houses in part because you know it's such a cool idea and it's something that really got going in the Uh, Middle of the 20th century, never really went anywhere. But in recent years, in part because building affordably is so difficult on site, uh, there's been a whole lot of action around modular building. And we have two primary factories in Chicago building factory-built or modular houses, one in Archer Heights and one in North Lawndale. So this latest project, which is using the North Lawndale factory, is in Woodlawn. There is a trio of developers working at 68th and Langley. They were building traditional houses which are thought of as stick-built houses or site-built houses. They were building those and then they got sort of they were doing their research trying to keep the prices down because they want buyers to be able to get in in Woodlawn into home ownership and they found that by building modular housing they could hold prices down. This is this is sort of the secret ingredient that, sh- that gets a lot of people involved in modular housing is you bring prices down in part because there's less time to hold the site. It's built in a factory. So there's, it's first of all, faster because it's mechanized, but also uh, you don't have weather problems slowing down construction. There are several other reasons that building in a factory is less expensive. So these developers at 68th and Langley had started on a stick built house And then they said, well, no, let's go modular. So in the beginning, their first three houses, they're going to have two modular, one stick built, all priced about the same way. And then going forward, they're more likely just to build modular on other lots. But on this set of lots, these three lots at 68th and Langley, they expect to have the modular houses delivered late January, next week. There is finishing that has to be done, tying in the utilities, et cetera takes about 10 days and put them on the market. While the stick-built house, which they began in 2023, won't be ready until after that, which is sort of one of the differentials between factory built and otherwise. We've talked about some of the work by this factory. It's run by Inherent Homes. We talked about them right around Thanksgiving when they were suggesting a tiny home for migrant housing and homeless housing. They also have a bunch of houses they've done in uh, Humboldt Park and other locations. This is the first time they've actually sold it to a private developer. This is they're not in partnership; it's just a an open transaction. I'm selling you my modular homes, so it's sort of an expansion for them and also another test of of this concept.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: And I don't know if I said, Amy. I'm sorry. I kind of was blabbing on. And did I say that the sale price, the asking price, will be four hundred twenty five thousand?
0: You did not but I'm glad you did. That was that was going to be my next question.
1: Oh, that was your question. Sorry, I jumped in.
0: No, it's all good. And and so I mean, generally, it's such a great idea. It's such an interesting idea, and it seems like it's coming in at such a lower price point, making it just that much more affordable. It's just fascinating like this idea of of what modular housing can accomplish versus I think of what we kind of thought about it for decades prior.
1: That's true. And when you look back at some of the modular home programs from the middle of the 20th century, and we've actually done stories on a few of them because there were there was a lot of it done in the chicago area some of it grows out of the the 1933 world's fair in chicago when you look at those they were a little spare they were a little spartan and so one of the things that these companies are doing now and i mentioned there are two factories in chicago there's also one we talked about in in uh, waukegan they're not building they're building second homes they're building nice modular homes that can be delivered to your sort of vacation property and in all three cases they're trying to make it look like a nice house they're, they're trying to make it so that when you walk in you don't say oh this must have been built in the factory right you walk in and say oh nice contemporary house and by the way these ones on langley they've gone a little bit farther i said this is a slightly different way for inherent which generally is building its own inherent is building uh for the affordable housing market This developer, JSA, is building for what's known as attainable, which is inexpensive but not subsidized. And um, so they put in some finishes into Inherent's basic model that upgraded a little bit. They put in a different kind of cabinetry. They put in a different kind of flooring to bring it up another notch, once again, to differentiate from that image we might have of modular housing.
0: That's right. Of it being kind of just about utility And less about, you know, beauty and and things like that.
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, when you think about utility, think of those metal-sided houses that um, we've done a couple of stories on, we've talked about a couple of times, where, you know, they were made from metal panels. Uh, They're pretty cool now, lustron houses. They have kind of a throwback look to them. But the idea was, oh, you know, my family's living in this nice wood or brick Mm -hmm. Cape Cod cottage, and I'm living in something made out of metal it just didn't, it didn't fly. Though there are dozens of those in the, uh, not in the Chicago area, but in Northern Illinois, I would say there are a lot of them that were built, but when you look at them, you get it.
0: I imagine that we'll see just more and more of that in years to come as kind of the, the, the state of housing will kind of require more and more creativity to come to it, to, to uh, just create access for people.
1: Well, and one thing to think about is we've got so much of it going on in Chicago, and we don't have as big an affordable housing problem as the West Coast, Phoenix, places like that. It's great that it's happening here, and we do have issues with affordable housing, but you would expect that a whole lot more going on there, we hope, it all congeals into a nice industry of building in a way that is more uh, affordable for people.
0: Well, let's talk about some particular properties. I want to start with uh, talking about a foreclosed Hutchinson Street mansion that is back on the market.
1: Oh, this one. (laughs) If I counted- (laughs) You sound so forlorn. (laughs) Well, you know, I, I first wrote about this house in 2012. It first came on the market in 2011. I didn't work at Cranes then. I worked at Chicago Magazine then. And I walked around with the couple, it's 2012, the couple who had bought it in 1989, had done a wonderful update of the house. They got rid of, somebody had ripped out a floor to put in a hot tub, they replaced all that. They It was great, and they were asking in the $4 million range. That's 2012. In the time since, the price came down, the house lingered on the market. Eventually, that family lost it in foreclosure last year, and it was on the market by the foreclosing lender at far less, under $2 million, and uh, in December, it came on the market, and it was marked contingent. And I was talking to the agent, and he was saying, it's closing in five days. Well, it's closing in 10 days. Well, it's closing in January. Then the deal fell apart. I don't know anything about the buyer. That was handled by a, different, by a buyer's agent, and I'm talking to the agent selling it for the foreclosing lender. He put it back on the market in early January. The foreclosing lender is asking $1.975 million for it. In 1989, mm. a long time ago, the couple who lost it in foreclosure paid $1.725 million. So you're only talking about about $200,000 more than they paid a generation ago in 1989. Right. Or looking at wow. it another way, what they paid in 1989 is equal to $4.2 million today, and now it's for sale for less than $2 million. Um it's sorry it's sad to see this. This is so this is a, a George Washington Mayor house. It's yeah. huge. People who go to Hutchinson Street know there are several houses by Mayor of different sizes. He was building there beginning in the 1890s. Built this one in 1913 for various homeowners. He's gets tapped again and again to do more projects. He did these remarkable houses with beautiful Art Nouveau, prairie-style details, just really cool. And this one is one of the coolest. It's a big, broad, red brick, prairie-style house. When you go inside, there's this hallway. It's not enough to say it's a gallery-style hallway. There's this long hall across the front where you would probably display art, but it's got all these um, wood arches. It's really a spectacular place. It has stained glass That was put in, in 1913, when the house was completed, and it has sat on the market since 2011. Now back on the market, in fact, since March 2011, so it's coming up on an anniversary, and now back on the market at, again, at only a little bit more than they paid for it in
0: 1989,
1: or if you look at present day dollars, half of what they paid in 1989.
0: That feels so remarkable. That I mean, we've had stories like that before, right? Where, where we just hear this huge drop in a, in a sale price, but still it, it's never not shocking when you hear it.
1: It's uh, That's exactly right. It's never not shocking. And this one, this is interesting because the agent tells me you do, so it was rehabbed in the late eighties, early nineties. You're going to have to re-rehab it. The kitchen is out of date, that sort of thing. But you have a lot of the historical finishes. Uh, so he said, you'll probably need to put in about half a million dollars into it. He said you need a new roof and some other things. But it's it's this wonderful George Mayer house. So I'm hoping that somebody comes along before the anniversary in March, before the 13th anniversary of the house going on the market.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, we will keep tabs on that and keep turning to you as you know more. Talk to me now about this. This is another, this is a very unusual house. It's a, it's a 70s house with a castle stone tower thing kind of tucked inside of it. Don't see that every day. Tell me about this place.
1: You know, this is one of those, when I'm flipping through the listings, I'm sort of like, ah, another one of these, ah, another one. Oh my goodness, yeah, look yeah. at this. There's nothing right, like right. this. This is really interesting. Built in Darien in 1975 by an interesting architect, Jay Hendervoit who did a lot of houses in the sixties through the nineties and some in the two thousands, he died recently. This one, I don't know why I couldn't find out who the original owner was. And I don't know why exactly it was done this way. It's, it's basically a ranch house, but with this stone exterior that has a tower on it. And then you go inside and that stone tower is a stack of three rooms. You've got, you saw the pictures, you've got the, one room with the built-in bench and the shag carpet. You've got the dining room. I mean, it looks like you're eating at your own little mini medieval times because you're surrounded by rock walls and fireplace and this giant chandelier hanging over you. And then the top is the catwalk in the top of the tower where you're circling that chandelier. It was built in 75, owned by a couple since the 90s. They put it on the market in November. And according to the agent, about 60 people came to look in the first few days. One of the first to look at it offered $5,000 over the asking price, bought it for 670000 It just closed this week is why we're talking about it now. You know, it's just one of those where, once again, I was flipping through the listings, but the real estate agent said, you know, you drive down the street and you're like, oh, that house, oh, that, oh my gosh, look at that.
0: Right. <laughs> and then there's a castle inside, yeah,
1: exactly it's really I mean it's so like it's not everybody's style. I think some people look at sure. it and think, oh yeah, you know, I went to a steakhouse that looked like that in 1978 but <laughs> I actually kind of like the steakhouse look from 1978 and I'm a vegetarian so it um, <laughs> it's pretty cool.
0: Exactly. Some people will say, oh, there's a castle inside. Other people will say, oh, there's a castle inside.
1: Well, you know what's interesting is I didn't speak to the buyers, but I did speak to their agent. And he said, so they were really just shopping by school district. They were not looking for a castle. They were not even specifically looking for a house from the 70s or anything like that. They were shopping by school district. And he pulled this up on the listings and he said, oh, I got to show this to my clients. And one member of the couple said, ooh. And the other said, "Uh, not unless I look at it. And then they went to look at it and they both said, ooh. And then I guess, you know, ordered steaks.
0: That's right. (laughs) You're right. It it seems like there's a lot of houses that, you know, they kind of run together sometimes with different, you know, whatever's popular with decor. And then once in a while there's a house you're just like, wait, what?
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You can do so many fun things with this tower.
0: Oh, sure. Of course. Definitely. All right. Well, talk to me about a Michigan Avenue condo owned by the last of the Monuments Men, and how it has come onto the market.
1: Richard Baranchik, also an architect, a Chicago architect, and he's dead, but I spoke to his daughter. They're selling his home of of about the last 20 years. Really interesting guy. We'll talk about the Monuments Men part second, but the first part is he was a very prolific architect. Buildings, several buildings, um, residential buildings downtown. We've talked about a couple of them in the past, His favorite apparently was 990 Lakeshore Drive. He built buildings on Chestnut Street, on Ritchie Court, on Bellevue. And he built one of the coolest relics that exists in our state parks. If you ever go to Illinois Beach State Park, there's this old set of beach houses with these wavy buildings. They're so cool. They're one of my favorite things to see in the summer. They're closed, but they're just super cool. He designed those. So he, he was a very interesting mid-century architect, but he has this World War II history. Uh, he, was very, he was a private first class. He's young, and the army is forming what came to be known as the Monuments Men, this group of scholars who were out to protect art and cultural treasures from the Nazis. They were scholars, they're professors, things like that. He's this young guy and he worked with them for several months. According to his daughter, then not much was really said about it for decades until a book comes out in the 21st century. George Clooney makes a movie. There's an awards ceremony at the uh, in Washington. And because he was this young guy at the time of World War II, he's the last one still standing. So he gets a lot of attention. And what his daughter said, I thought this was really poignant. His daughter said that He was embarrassed to get all this notice, but then he said, "No, you know, actually, I'm here in the place of all those men and women who were working at the time on this, but then they died before the honors came around." Which I thought was was really very poignant. So Baranchik, 2003, bought this condo in the Park Tower. It's not his architecture. There are some built-ins we showed in the story, um, some bookcases and a TV cabinet and a few other things he built but really it was an already finished condo when he bought it but one of the things his daughter said he died at 98 years old so he was in his late 70s when he buys it with his then wife and she later died one of the reasons he liked it was he was this Michigan Avenue character he was always all through his career known for walking up and down Michigan Avenue walking through the city she said he never took the CTA he always just walked fast and then he gets to this condo and you can see his favorite of his buildings in the city, 990 Lakeshore Drive. And you also have this view out through, this is in the Park Tower, which is immediately west of the water tower and pumping station. So when you're looking east out of the Park Tower, you're looking over those two monuments, the water tower and the pumping station. You're looking over the Museum of Contemporary Art. You're looking all the way out to the lake through this canyon of high rises. And she said, Mm This was the kind of guy who loved to sit on a balcony like this, surrounded by Chicago high-rises, which I hope I'm doing when I'm 95 years old.
0: Right. Yeah, that's a good, I was going to say, that's a very good life goal. Yeah, it's right only right two there.
1: years away, so I need to get working.
0: <laughs> Come now. <laughs> Tell me about the pricing on this condo.
1: They're asking a little under $3 million. It's only a couple percentage points. It's about two and a half percent above what he paid 20 years ago. Because, you know, it, it needs, you may want to update the kitchen and things like that.
0: Sure, definitely. All right. And then lastly, talk to me about um, Carrie Wood's house that has been listed in Winnetka for almost $8.5
1: Beautiful house. Um, Carrie Wood has a really interesting real estate history, which I detail in the story. Carrie Wood, for people who aren't aware, uh, was a Cubs pitcher. Just last week was named to the Cubs Hall of Fame. He has lived in Chicago longer than he played in chicago his wife sarah is from waukegan and they've really raised their kids here this house built in 1902 is a seven-bedroom house on prospect really beautiful they bought it in 2019 for under 4 million they're asking more than twice that now Um, but they added a pool they added a pool house they added an outdoor kitchen i don't know much more because the real estate agent was not was not able to talk with me about it Uh, but we do know that they did at least that much, adding a pool, et cetera. I assume because of what they've done with other houses that they also did a lot of updates inside, but I don't know that for sure. It's got wrought iron gates and a low brick wall around the house, really sort of like the most Winnetka of Winnetka houses you can imagine. It's the third house they've owned in Winnetka. So I've first covered Kerry Wood back in the early 2000s. He comes to Chicago in 95 to play for the Cubs, 98, he becomes a star with a major pitching feat. Then in 2003, he first enters my arena because he buys a, a condo on Wells. He and his wife, Sarah, by that time they're married, bought a condo on Wells. And then you watch them move from River North up to Old Town, up to Lincoln Park, up to Winnetka with a sideline in Lake Geneva. They've had three houses in Winnetka. The first was, uh, they, they actually never moved into, they bought it planning to tear it down. There was controversy over tearing it down. They withdrew their application to tear it down and they ended up selling it. Then they did move up to Winnetka in 2015 when they bought a house on Higginson, which they later sold, bought this one. Now they're selling this one. In all, I think I looked at, Uh, I I think I've written about six of their properties over time.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Uh, Dennis, what is coming up in the week ahead?
1: Uh, Well, we've got a couple of things going on. Um, One is we're finishing up the story on the top sales of the year, Hmm. 50 highest price sales of the year. And the bottom rung on that came down a lot in 2023.
0: Okay.
1: And also at the end of the week, the, the end of the year data for the whole market, sales at all prices will come out. And one of the things to look at is, How much did sales volume drop in all of 2023? Um, One of the reasons to pay attention to that is um, household spending. Once you move, you buy drapes and other kinds of things. And so how much consumer spending was not there because there were so many fewer houses traded?
0: Yeah, definitely. That'll be very interesting to get into all of that when you do all the math so we don't have to. I continue to appreciate that about you, Dennis. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much, Dennis. And uh, we'll talk again this time next week. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, Boeing completes initial inspections of the MAX 9 jets, a key step to eventually end the grounding of the aircraft ordered by U.S. regulators. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Want to dive deeper into the topics you've heard here? Read the full stories and get access to all of Crane's award-winning coverage with a Crane's Chicago Business subscription. Crane's Daily Gist listeners can get 20% off a one-year Crane's Chicago Business digital subscription by visiting chicagobusiness.com gist and using promo code gist at checkout. Once again, to redeem this offer, visit chicagobusiness.com gist and enter code gist to get this deal while it lasts. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Crane's Legion Greco reported that some civic leaders are calling for the city to re examine its do not hire list practices after another former staffer in the mayor's office said they were placed on the list in retaliation for complaints they made in the office. John Greco reported that Mayor Brandon Johnson's administration fired another worker in the mayor's office and placed them on the city's do not hire list late this summer, raising questions over whether the administration has gone too far in its use of the authority. The episode marks the fourth reported incident of the Johnson administration wielding the Do Not Hire list on holdovers from former Mayor Lori Lightfoot's term, following a Chicago Tribune story that identified three Lightfoot staffers who transitioned to the Johnson team and were later fired about complaining about alleged mistreatment by top officials in the mayor's office. The fourth government worker who spoke with Cranes on the condition of anonymity had started their tenure under Lightfoot and successfully appealed their placement on the list with the city's Department of Human Resources, according to documents obtained by Cranes. John Greco noted that the do-not-hire list has also received attention in the past, though for different reasons. Public officials and civic advocates have argued that its authority was too narrow since the city didn't share the list with sister agencies. And that meant a former city worker could end up blacklisted by the city government but could hop over to another public employer, such as the CTA. John Greco further noted in reporting that what specific behavior or wrongdoing to warrant placement on the list is not clearly defined by the city's Department of HR. She also noted that the department's latest policy lays out four reasons why a former worker could be placed on the list. Those include a termination for disciplinary action for career service workers and discharge for non-career service workers. Former city workers could also end up on the list if they resign or retire in lieu of discharge, meaning they know the charges are coming or have been charged, so they voluntarily leave instead. Lastly, the list also applies to workers who leave the city during an investigation by one of the city's investigators agencies, and the agency's findings substantiate serious misconduct. Greco noted that the inspector general's office often handles those investigations. If the IG substantiates the allegations, they will recommend that the city department place the worker on the do-not-hire list, according to Chicago inspector general Deborah Witzberg, who also said that beyond that, the office hasn't examined whether there's a trend of city government officials referring more people to the list than they have in the past. She added that the use of the do-not-hire list bears further consideration. Chicago's former Inspector General Joe Ferguson said the city has some discretion in exercising its use of the list, but said it should be reserved for cases of serious misconduct or incompetence. Find more reporting on this story at chicagobusiness.com. In an effort to boost investor confidence, Walgreens Boots Alliance CEO Tim Wentworth recently purchased more than $240,000 worth of company stock. But so far, Wall Street hasn't shared his optimism. Crane's healthcare reporter Catherine Davis reported that Wentworth, who became CEO in October, bought 10,000 Walgreens shares for just over $242,000 at $24.22 apiece, according to a January 8th SEC filing. The transaction brought Wentworth's total Walgreens holdings to over 585,000 shares, according to the filing. Wentworth was given over 562,000 restricted stock shares when he joined the company and held more than 575,000 of them as of December 8th, according to a proxy statement. Wentworth told Cranes in a statement that his stock purchase is, quote, a signal of my confidence and belief in WBA's future. He also said, quote, I know that building on our solid pharmacy foundation and trusted brands will enable us to partner across healthcare services and drive long-term profitable growth. Davis noted in reporting that CEOs sometimes buy stock in their companies to signal their commitment to the business and optimism that it will deliver on profit targets. When CEOs buy stock directly, they assume the same risks as ordinary investors, meaning they'll lose their own money if the stock price declines. But so far, Wentworth's stock purchase hasn't motivated investors. Davis noted that in the week after the transaction, Walgreens' stock dropped by 9%. The weak market response might stem from Wentworth's stock transaction representing a relatively small amount of his total shares, according to Eric Gordon, an assistant professor at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business. Gordon said, quote, he went from 575000 to 585000 That's not a vote of confidence. That's adding a grain of sand to the pyramid. Davis noted that Wentworth's purchase is also in stark contrast to a stock purchase by Walgreens executive chairperson and former CEO Stefano Pesina, who spent $163 million for 2 million company shares in 2016. Piscina now owns more than 145 million company shares, making him the largest single shareholder, with 17% of the company, according to Walgreens' most recent proxy statement. Davis also reported that Wentworth's stock purchase came the day after he told investors that Walgreens was cutting its dividend to nearly 50% to 25 cents per share as it works to improve cash flow and free up capital to invest in the pharmacy and healthcare units. The dividend cut came after revenues and profits lagged for several quarters as the Deerfield based company pumped resources into standing up a new healthcare delivery business. Davis further noted that Walgreens stock has steadily declined in recent years. Over the last 12 months, the company's stock has fallen 37% and closed at about $23 on January 16th. Meanwhile, stock for CVS Health is down just 13% over the last year and closed at $77 also on January 16th. Bloomberg reported that Inspire Brands is taking sub-chain Jimmy John's abroad as part of a broader international push by one of the world's largest restaurant conglomerates. The move will take champagne-based Jimmy John's to markets including Canada and El Salvador, as Inspire aims for global growth, according to the company's president of international operations. The Atlanta-based parent company has used a string of acquisitions, from Buffalo Wild Wings in 2017 to Dunkin' and Baskin Robbins in 2020, to become a major player in the industry. Bloomberg noted in reporting that brands owned by Inspire operate about 30,000 restaurants worldwide. Bloomberg also reported that Jimmy John's first Canadian locations will open in the Toronto area and in Latin America, the first stores will be in El Salvador, with others planned for Guatemala, Ecuador, and Peru. Inspire Brands' six chains brought in a combined $31 billion in global sales in 2022, according to its website. It's the third-largest restaurant company with multiple brands by Global system Sales, surpassed only by Taco Bell owner Yum! Brands and Burger King parent company Restaurant Brands International, according to research firm Technomic. Bloomberg reported that operators of Boeing 737 MAX 9 have completed inspections on an initial batch of 40 planes an important step to eventually end the grounding of the aircraft ordered by U.S. regulators in the wake of an accident earlier this month on an Alaska Airlines flight. The FAA will now review findings from those 40 checks to determine whether the Boeing-drafted procedures are appropriate to return the fleet of 171 grounded MAX 9s to service, that according to a statement on Wednesday from the agency. The agency ordered the grounding after a MAX 9 operated by Alaska Airlines suddenly lost a fuselage section shortly after takeoff on January 5th, sparking a crisis in confidence in Boeing's manufacturing process and a flurry of investigations. The agency said, quote, "...once the FAA approves an inspection and maintenance process, it will be required on every grounded 737-9 MAX prior to future operation." They continued, quote, the safety of the flying public, not speed, will determine the timeline for returning these aircraft to service. Bloomberg reported that Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun planned to visit the main campus of Spirit Aerosystems Holdings in Wichita, Kansas, later on Wednesday, where the supplier assembles a large part of the 737 MAX's main airframe. The visit comes after Boeing announced multiple steps to bolster quality and oversight at its factories earlier this week. In the wake of the January 5th incident, both United and Alaska Airlines, the only MAX 9 operators in the U.S., found loose hardware during examinations of the planes' door plugs. Both airlines have canceled hundreds of flights since the planes were ordered to remain parked.